Good morning, nine o'clock. How are you? Good to see you today. Listen, about five weeks ago, we started something here called Questions You Never Thought You Could Ask in Church. And at that time, five weeks ago, I shared a slide with you. I'd like to show it again to you today. And it says this. It's something very core uh, to my beliefs personally and to us here at Fellowship of Faith. It's a desire to be real. Here's what it says. We believe the church needs to be a place where people can come and see that Christians are real people, experiencing real joys, passions, and struggles. And because of this, we strive to communicate God's truth and share our experiences in genuine and honest ways. Too many Christians and too many churches are way too concerned about appearance. And it strikes me as ironic because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And sometimes I think truth in that equation gets a little bit overlooked because truth is about being honest. And that includes our failures, our doubts, our confusions, our disagreements with God. And so what we're going to do today is first I'm going to invite you to take one of these out, all right? And I want to show you a phone number here today, 815-314-0363. Today, what we do is we finish up this run of questions you never thought you could ask in church, and what I'm going to invite you to do is text in right now to this number any question that you have on God, the Bible, theology, church, and how it intersects with life. I'm going to get them anonymously, so this is a good chance to let it all hang out, and I want to encourage you something this morning. Dare to risk. Too many people are too afraid to simply ask, or too embarrassed maybe, to just ask the questions that they have. So guys, I'm sorry, that's, that's stupid. Ask them. Because it's when we kind of get into the grit of those questions that we have that God's work and God's spirit really starts to churn something. So guys, here we go. For the next 20, 25 minutes or so, your questions, and I will do my best to field them on the spot. Here we go. All right, give me a second. Here we go. Question one. It's compiling. (laughs) Come on, open up. Hey, Mark. Keep them coming. I'll get, you know, a backlog here. This worked earlier at, like, run-through. Get these to open up for me. Beautiful. Thank you. All right. Yeah, I'm not a Mac guy. (laughs) Easy one off the bat. Who is the oldest person in the Bible? I'm going to assume you mean this in terms of who lived the longest before they died, because you could argue Enoch or Elijah, who never died. All right? That being said, who is the oldest person in the Bible? Read Genesis chapter 5. It's a dude named Methuselah. 969 big ones on the map. All right? Good question. Question two. If God created the earth, then how is science related? Why didn't he um, 
uh, it says, why didn't he outlife on other planets? Did he create the other planets? Let's kind of weave through this. Let's start backwards. Did God create the other planets? Yes. If life is to be discovered on other planets, did God create those? Yes, because fundamental to the biblical message is that God is the creator of all, not just a little local backwater tribal planet called Earth, all right? He created humanity in his image, but he created the cosmos, as it'll put it, and all its array. Now, if God created it, then how is science related? In every conceivable way. Science is God's handiwork. Science is God's tool. Science is a method of learning and discovery considered uh, or, or, or concerned with seeking truth just as much as theology is concerned with seeking truth. And there's times when theology and truth seem to lead, to theology and, uh, and science seem to lead to different um, explanations of truth. There's times when it seems to even contradict and it's in those cases that we're called to seek truth diligently looking at them critically, analyzing our assumptions, re-looking at data. And in the end, God inviting us to trust him in those times when we just can't make sense of things. So great question. I'm sure there's like 25 follow-ups that can come on that. And uh, I'll just leave it there. Is it wrong if a Christian stops going to church? Does it make them a bad Christian or person? Fascinating on this one. Um, This one was actually submitted five weeks ago, and we answered it here as part of a questions on forgiveness thing two weeks ago. Maybe you missed it, but I'll field it again. First of all, we got to start with an assumption. Doesn't make them a bad person? You're already a bad person. All right? You are. Who's a Christian here? Okay, you're a bad one. I am too. That's why we're here right? If you weren't a bad person, you could worship and pray to yourself, but you are. So all of us at some fundamental level have to come with that realization. Now, is it wrong if a Christian stops going to church? Honestly, depends on the church you're going to. Jeez. Um, Sometimes the most spiritually sanctified thing you can do is stop going to a certain church. But that being said, yeah, you know, but that being said, we got to start with, an, uh, with a definition of what you mean by church. Is church to you this facility or any facility that you happen to frequent? Is your definition of church four walls with a steeplish kind of looking artifice that runs a pre-described program with predictability every given Sunday morning and has some kind of charter or, 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 or governing document to back it up. If that's your definition of church, Jesus didn't go to church, all right? Believers throughout centuries and throughout space have not gone to church. But that's not the biblical definition of church. The biblical definition of church is um, these people sitting around you right here Church exists wherever the people of God exist that are gathering for his purpose and in his name. So let me ask you this question to answer your question. Is it wrong to stop interacting with other believers, to stop growing together and seeking God together and wrestling through the things of faith and life together? Is it wrong to stop 
encouraging each other and serving one another and holding each other accountable. Isn't that wrong? Yeah, you better believe it is. Great question. Next one. I feel like I'm worst. I sin on a minutely basis. Why would God forgive me when I don't give him a chance? Because that's what God does. That's how amazing God is. The fact that you're here today and you realize what truly exists inside of you and how frequently and and how completely you fall short of God's will and glory to me is a good sign. Because there's way too many believers out there that have forgotten. The entire point of the gospel that separates it from all other religions of this world is that it is not about you getting good enough for God to accept you. It's instead that God loves you so stinking much that he did everything in his power and continues to do everything in his power and shower you with grace and forgiveness because of the blood of Jesus, no matter how bad a wretch you are. He is a God that accepts you, chases after you, welcomes you with open arms, pants after you, wants you, hungers you, loves you, and forgives you even when you don't give him a second thought or the time of day. And the New Testament is chock full of story after story after example after example. If that feels scandalous to you, it's because it is. Because God's a scandalous God. If it seems unbelievable to you, it's because it is, because he does the unbelievable So embrace that place you're at right now and throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus Christ because it's there that God says, I love you and I forgive you totally. Great question. All right, next one. Let me get a a refresh going here. Okay, we got a couple on this one. If God created the earth, uh, I got that one follow-up, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Why does he allow pain and suffering. All right. I mean, th- this is a big one. And uh, likewise, we touched on this one briefly a couple of weeks ago. And I shared then something I'll share today. What I'm going to give to you now is not a comprehensive answer. Because the complexity and depth of this question goes beyond what I can do in 60 seconds. However, within that, let me give you a certain guide, a certain trajectory, so you can continue to explore this path. First, I always need to back up and and, and challenge, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? I think your definition's wrong. Just like I don't think there's good Christians in this room, I don't think any of us are fundamentally good. Fundamental throughout the scriptural testimony is that God never intended any of this bad stuff to happen. It happens in us to us and in this world precisely because it is a bad, sinful, messed up world. And we are bad, sinful, messed up people. There's a line 
that weaves itself through historic liturgies of every stripe and and denomination. It comes out in different ways, but, but it says something like this. I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess to you, Lord Almighty, all my sins and justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. Being a Christian is about coming to a place where you actually believe that. So everything we face in this world is ultimately at some fundamental root generated by a world and a people that has spiraled out of control away from the plans and things of God. But let me nuance it more. Because I think what this question might be asking is, relatively speaking, why does someone like this over here, who cares nothing for God or other people, who lives only to get ahead, and treats everyone in their path like dirt, seem so prosperous, happy, content, while someone like this over here, who spends a life sacrificing for God and for other people, who is motivated by mercy and justice and compassion, end up with cancer, or get hit by a car, or just face life trial after life trial after life trial every step along the way. Believe it or not, the Bible does not give one answer to that question. It gives multiple because there is no one answer that is formulaically or universally true in every given situation and time. To just give one more log on this fire, I want to refer you to Luke chapter 13. Jesus gets asked this same question. Jesus, those people who died in that building collapse, they must have been really bad sinners, weren't they? And Jesus, you know those people who were slaughtered by that unjust governor? You know those people that just unjustly slaughtered and cut down? What did they do to sin? Jesus said, do you think they're worse sinners than anyone else? No, he says. I tell you, no. But then he adds, but unless you repent you too will perish. Every bit of suffering and pain in this world is a taste test of what separation from God looks like. And how it comes and why it comes is, is, is matrixed by a complex array of factors. But the universal truth to all of us is this. God has provided a solution to it, a way through it, and a promise of vindication to come. And he invites everyone to turn from that which is away from him, which is equated with suffering and death, towards him, which is life. If you want to get more specific on that, um, text in again. Great question. Okay. Do you believe people can die and receive a glimpse of heaven and then come back to earth? For example, the story behind heaven is for real. All right? Uh, Do I believe that it can happen? Sure. And the reason I believe that can happen is because it never says it can't happen um, in the scripture. Does that mean I believe that it happens every time someone claims it happens? No. But can it? Absolutely. And do I think God does it on occasion? I absolutely do. And here's even better news. I don't even think you have to die sometimes. Paul will write in 2 Corinthians 12 about getting a glimpse of the third heaven, that God gives him a revelation. Not only that, think about all the biblical authors who are writing about what? I looked, and I saw heaven. And they weren't even dead. 
So good news, if you're hoping to see heaven, maybe hope that you don't die first and get to see it. You know, that's at least my prayer. As far as the story behind heaven is for real, you know, I'm going to suspend judgment on that. I haven't seen it. I haven't read it. So I can't speak into it. And even if I have said it, I don't want to make a determination on an hour and a half movie. All right? But that being said, I think uh, that might cover that one uh, good enough. All right? Was God ever born or did he create himself? Answer to that is yes and no. All right? God in all eternity from the beginning just was. He was not born. He was not created. I know you're sitting there right right now going, how did that happen? I don't know how that happened. It just says that he is eternal. But think through it logically. If someone had to create God, who created the person who created God? You're really not getting out of this cycle at some point. Uh, But secondly, Jesus was born. And Jesus was God. So in a sense, God allowed himself to be born to be created and experience what you and I experience. Could evolution be considered God's tool for creation? Absolutely, it could be considered. Um, It's fascinating. All right. You ever see the Blues Brothers? All right. Do you know when they go into Bob's Country Bunker and they ask, what type of music do you have? And he goes, we've got both kinds, you know, country and Western, right? I feel like this is the same argument applied to the creation and evolution debate. I feel like the only two options people think are out there are a strict secular Darwinian evolutionary view or a six-day, 6,000-year-old literal creationist view. And guys, I'm here to tell you that there are Bible-believing, Bible-committed, really smart theologians and scientists who come up with a whole degree of spectrums that, 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 that aren't even on this continuum. There are so many things to ask here, like what do you mean by evolution? Does evolution simply mean the adaptation of species? Absolutely, it's happening all the time. But by evolution, do you mean that all life began at a single-cell organism and human beings are just another animal that are really, really cool? Um, then no, because the Bible says that there's something about humanity that is different and special, despite relations it might have to other animal species. I want to put something on your grid here, because I I love this topic and it's huge. Mid-September, we are getting into this hardcore, and we've just booked it for October 11th, which is a Saturday. We are having two Bible scholars come in who take different views on the evolution-creation debate. And they are going to present their cases, debate and field questions in front of us. If you're hungry on this one, I'll give you some resources. Mark your calendar. All right? Great one. Let's see. Why are the letters... um, oh, Oh, okay, I see what this is saying. Why are the letters at the end of the New Testament, except for perhaps Revelation, treated as less, it says impotent, I don't know if it means impotent or important, but I'm going to go with this, less impotent than other New Testament books. If you're not following this, the New Testament is not a single book. The New Testament is comprised of 27 different, I can't even call them books, because some of them are letters. In fact, most of them are. And it seems, 
as though the, the letters and books at the start of the New Testament tend to get like a lot more airtime, if you will. Well, I'm not going to say they're less important. They just tend to be less comprehensive in many ways. Let me give you an example, and I'm going to give you a challenge. Read Romans, and then read 3 John. And then come back and ask me, or tell me, which one tends to deal more with the theological and life questions that you're asking. And I think that might cut through, but no, I mean, God gave them all, they're all important, and they all have their place. So, let's see. Do you have to try out for the band? <laughs> right. <laughs> Funny, you should ask. <laughs> After today's service, do you see all the tables set up out there? We've got an influence fair going on, and there is a table right around the doors for worship and production, and they are recruiting for the band, all right? They are taking people at all levels of talent and skill. Um, what we're looking for is heart. So you go over and you tell them that, and no, you don't get some weird audition thing where we're calling you back in three weeks. I hope to see you soon up here, all right? All right. I'll read it literally and you interpret with me. How to have the faith to let go and let God work with you. I'm going to assume that this is written or texted by a control freak like me. Someone who gets mildly obsessed with having to make sure everything in their orbit, be that internal or external, depending on your variety, is set so you can have inner peace. Faith gets real in those moments, doesn't it? It just gets real. And as one of these people who have had a very difficult time through the course of his life letting go and letting God, if you will, what I found is this. It is not a one-time event. It's a daily commitment. It's like AA. An alcoholic just doesn't say, I'm cured. An alcoholic treats every single day as a new day, dealing with that day. Do you realize addictions go bigger than drugs and alcohol? Control in many ways is one of them. And so what I encourage you to do is just start treating each day as that day and pick one thing in that day and say, Lord, in this one thing, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to deal with it. If it is something that you have not given me responsibility for, if it is something that you have not given me a calling to, then God, I am just going to let you have this one, entrust you to the results, and this is what's tough, even if I don't like them. Ooh, I don't like that. <laughs> but I don't know a way around it. All right. Let me refresh. All right, here's one. All right. When we talk about predestination, one of the things I struggle with is Romans 9. Quote, God said to Pharaoh, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power. I struggle with this because God, uh, God raised up Pharaoh to do evil things to his people so that God's glory could be seen. I don't view this as loving. 
It's tough to picture God being loving and a God who exists to bring glory to himself. Is God really a loving God? Awesome, awesome question. And we're out of time, so let's rise and... uh... To err on the side of simplicity, let me try to navigate you through. Understand that all of the Bible, outside of the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is commentary. The entire rest of the Old Testament and the entire New Testament is doing nothing more than interpreting and bringing commentary on those first five books that were written. So what that means is when you look at the question of Pharaoh, go back to the source material. And you can read the story of how God used Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, second book. What you're going to see is that God raised up a man named Moses and sent him to Pharaoh with 10 signs, 10 plagues, 10 wonders, 10 times. As you read Exodus, nine of those times, the first nine times, the text literally says this, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. On the 10th time, it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Which causes me to ask a number of questions. Is Pharaoh hardening his own heart and God hardening his heart two perspectives on the exact same thing? Or is it meant to be read linear, sequential, as though God gave him chance after chance after chance after chance and finally said, I got to get my plan going on. Theologians will differ on that. There are two major theologies that I'll present to you today that Christians wrestle through. One is to hold God's glory and God's love in equal tension. The other is to see God's love trumping God's glory, despite his glory being very central to who he is. Depending on which of those camps you find yourself in will lead you to different answers on this question. I believe the latter. As I read through the scriptures, I see God's glory being something absolutely central, but it seems that God is always willing to trump his glory because of love. The biggest case in point, I would say, is the wonderful glory of being humiliated on a cross, which ironically becomes God's greatest sign of glory of all. God's glory is the manifestation of God's love. So, while the wrestle is probably still there, will God harden a heart? Will God pull back? Will God allow us to face our own consequences? Short answer is yeah, yeah, he will. Does that scare you a little bit? Good. Because I think it's become so easy for us to take God for granted to deal with him tritely and to view him as a cosmic Santa Claus. And when you start to realize that this is real stuff with real consequences, the scriptural testimony is it better bring you to a place of of repentance and wonder and awe because that's how mighty God is. Good question. A couple more. When people die from other religions with a distorted view of Jesus, uh, the example given was Mormons, do they go to heaven? Here is how you go to heaven. Trusting in Christ 
as your savior. This gets manifested in different ways, described in different ways. Sometimes it's called faith. Sometimes it's called repentance. Sometimes it's thrown, trusting God, as Roman puts it, who justifies the wicked. Regardless, it is throwing yourself on God's mercy. I got good news for you. Your entry to heaven does not depend on the score you get on your theological test. There is always someone who knows more about Jesus. All of us, at some level, do not have a complete picture. Agreed? And so, salvation is never about what label that you have on yourself, what church you happen to attend. I know many people that attend very good Christian churches who aren't Christian and aren't going to heaven. I know people who happen to be in distorted church bodies or belief systems. And yet, despite what the organization believes, them, personally, it's something different. It's the individual, not the label that counts. So a distorted view, you've got a distorted view, I promise you. We all do. But are you throwing yourself on the mercy of the Jesus who came and gave his life? Good question. And we'll do one more. What does it mean to sanctify someone? And then it gives a following like an unbelieving spouse. All right, I don't know what's going on in your home right now, but you got some things brewing, all right? Um, Let's start with question one. What does it mean to sanctify? There's a theological or churchy term. It's called sanctification. No one uses it because it's long, all right? What does it mean to make something holy, to treat something as holy, to become holy? Holy, sanctify, same word, all right? God is in the process of sanctifying each and every one of us, and it is a process. It happens by his spirit coming upon us, convicting us, leading us, challenging us, forming us, building us, and so forth. And so that's what it means, and and God is in the process of doing it with us even now. Now, the cool thing and the dangerous thing about being a human is that we have a ripple effect. Each of us is putting out a certain degree of radiation, if you will. And anyone who gets within our radiation gets affected by it for good or for ill. Have you ever been around people and it's just like you just felt like toxic after being in their presence for like five minutes? At the same time, have you ever been around certain people that like, without fail, whenever you're around them, you just kind of walk away inspired, uplifted, strengthened, encouraged, and like on a course for something good. You know what I mean? Do you realize you have that exact same effect? And so the call for every um, believer by God is to widen the blast radius, to intensify the concentration, to realize that what you do and what you think and how you carry yourself and just who you are is going to have an effect. And so when 1 Corinthians 7 talks about sanctifying an unbelieving spouse, it's talking about that effect. It's talking about having that kind of blast radius on those that you've committed to and those that you often conflict with the most, especially if one is a believer and an unbeliever. What does it mean if you're a believer and you're married to an unbeliever to be a force of good in that person's life? And not just so you're happy, but for their sake, that's what it's about. Guys, I got like 19 more questions here. 
and the clock hit. Fresh questions at 10.30 today. If yours didn't come and get answered, uh, come again in a half hour, all right? Roll the dice and text it in again. I want to invite you to rise, and I want to invite the band to uh, come forward. I just want to say, way to go on this, guys. Keep asking questions. I've heard it said once that every time you learn something new about God, it should raise 10 more questions about him. It is in the questions that God will take you from where you're at to the place and the person he's hoping you to be. So would you pray with me? God, thank you. Um, Thank you for teaching us about yourself. For revealing things about yourself for showing yourself in so many different ways and God help us to see and to hear God help us to conform our ideas to your ideas our ways to your ways our worldview to, to your truth for creation and life and you and are all about And in that place, God, when we glimpse you, may we, may we fall to our knees realizing how good you are and how much we are not. And in that place on our knees, God, have mercy. Here we are, we throw ourselves on you. Not because we deserve it, not because we're good people, not because there's anything that says you got to give it, just you're a merciful God who loves us. Have mercy, O Lord, we pray. Sanctify us. Renew us. Mold us in your image.